We're starting a new series tonight in the book of Colossians. So why don't you raise your hand if you need a Bible, and one of our kind leaders will pass one out to you. The book of Colossians, and the title of this series is The New Reality. The New Reality. We believe that God wants us to walk in a way that pleases him by stepping out of the old sinful life that we used to live and walk into the new nature, the new life that he's given to us as a gift. Eternal life doesn't begin the day that you die. It begins the day that you accept Jesus as your Lord and Savior. And we're excited to explore that life tonight. So Colossians chapter 1, we'll start in verse 1. If you like taking notes, hopefully there's no taking paper and pens that can come around as well. The title of this message is, Don't Get Caught Off Guard. Don't get caught off guard. Colossians chapter 1. We'll be in verses 1 through 14 this evening. Colossians chapter 1 verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God and Timothy our brother, to the saints and faithful brethren in Christ who are in Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We give thanks to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of your love for all the saints because of the hope which is laid up for you in heaven of which you heard before in the word of the truth of the gospel which has come to you as it is also in all the world and is bringing forth fruit as it is also among you since the day you heard it and knew the grace of God in truth as you also learn from Epaphras our dear fellow servant who is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf who also declared to us your love in the Spirit. For this reason also, we also, since the day we heard it, do not cease to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all wisdom and spiritual understanding, that you may walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing him, being fruitful in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened with all might, according to his glorious power for all patience and long suffering with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in the light. He has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of the Son of his love, in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. Let's pray. Lord, as we open up your word this evening, we thank you, Lord, that you are faithful that you are just to forgive us of our sins, Lord. And, and not only that, Lord, but you've given us instructions on the way that we should live this life. And we pray, Lord, as we begin a study in the book of Colossians, that you would teach us, Lord, what that means to live into the new life, that we wouldn't, we wouldn't get caught off guard and be deceived by all the snares of the enemy. So tonight, Lord, I pray that you do something special. I pray, Lord, if there's someone here tonight that isn't sure if you're real, Lord, that you confirm that to them. There's a person here that's looking for direction. Maybe their heart's burdened or heavy. Even right now, Lord, you give them the peace that surpasses understanding, Lord, that they would feel and know your love. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Context is everything. Context is everything. You guys know that what you say can be taken out of context. And I'm not just talking about presidential debates. I'm not just talking about the things that you hear on the news and people are always quoting people out of context. But you guys know you're reading scripture and then a person tells you, hey, listen, 
I don't believe the Bible because the Bible says blah, 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 whatever. And then you're like, that verse is taken out of context. Or people say, hey, man, don't judge me. Doesn't the Bible say don't judge? And you're like, well, that's taking it out of context. Context is everything. And it's very important that our words are in relation to other thoughts. And we're not just saying things and taking little sound bites and just throwing them out there. And yet, at the same time, isn't it true that when we read the book of Colossians and we read the Bible, that very often we read it out of context? And I, I don't mean just like we just take passages, although some of us do that. I mean, be honest, don't raise your hand, but some of us flip through the Bible and just kind of point our finger down and like, Lord, what do you want to speak to me today? Let's try it right now. Here we go. Bible roulette. Ready? And the word of God for me is, your throne is established from of old. You are from everlasting. Okay. Sounds great. I don't know. Chances are you're always going to land in the Psalms because it's in the middle of the Bible. But many of us take the Bible out of context. And I, I'm not saying like we do Bible roulette. What I'm saying is we have no idea to whom this letter is written, what it is, what's its purpose. We don't even know what the Colossian, who the Colossians were. We don't know what the city's like. We don't know anything about this. Now, think about this. Think about how ridiculous that is. Imagine you are walking around, and as you're walking around, you see a letter on the floor, and it's a heartfelt letter. You just pick it up, and you read it. And as you're reading this heartfelt letter, it's saying things like, hey, remember what I said to you last year? Like, you should keep on doing that. And by the way, say hi to this person, that person. And you're reading it like, wow, what a meaningful letter. And you put it down, and you're like walking, like, I'm going to live differently now because of that letter. You have no idea who this person is, right? And that's what we do to the Bible very often. We just kind of pick it up, read it, and like, yep, I'll, uh, I like that verse. It sounds good. But we have no idea what this is all about. Well, what I hope to do for you tonight as we begin the book of Colossians is, first of all, tell you what the city of Colossae was like, where was the person who was writing it from, and what is its purpose. And that will set the stage for the entire study that we do tonight. First of all, the city is Colossae. It's about 100 miles from Ephesus, to whom the book of Ephesians is written from the guy Paul. He wrote Colossians, Ephesians, many of these letters. And Paul, writing from prison, most likely in Rome, uh, writes this letter to the Colossians, people at Colossae. Now, Colossae was this town that was booming. In fact, they, they were a rich city that sold a lot of wool. And oftentimes they would take the wool from these sheep that would be in kind of like the hillside. They would dye it red. And so they would call these, uh, the, the wool that's red, they would call it the Colossian wool. So it was like, uh, you know, like made in China. It's like made from the Colossians. It's kind of like that's how it was. So this was a rich city except for one terrible thing that happened. Um, there was a terrible earthquake. And most likely that's what shattered the city. So it became very, very small. So... There was a nearby town, Laodicea, and many of you may know, if you read the book of Revelation, there's uh, an angel that writes to Laodicea, the church at Laodicea, about 10 miles away from Colossians, or the city of Colossae, so not that very far. But they were, they were rebuilt. Colossae, eh, people didn't really care about them. They didn't get any money from the government. So they kind of stayed a small town. Actually, what's really important here is that the city of Colossae was so small that there's a commentator that actually writes and says that this is the most insignificant city to which Paul writes in the entire Bible. Interesting. And did you actually know that Paul didn't start this church either? 
In fact, Paul had never visited this church when he wrote this letter. So this is what happened. Here at the city of Colossae, it was first planted by this guy Epaphras. Now Epaphras most likely was saved when he would go into Ephesus, which is once again not too far, about 100 miles away. And we learn in the Bible that Paul was preaching daily for a couple years in Ephesus, teaching the word of God. And the whole city heard the word of God because of his preaching uh, in this school of Tyrannus. So as he's preaching, most likely this guy Epaphras was saved, and then he brought it back to Colossae where he brought the gospel and a church was formed. Now Epaphras starting this church, it was awesome at first, but then it seemed like there was some heresy that was happening in the church. So false doctrine, things were happening that weren't kosher for Passover. If you don't know what that means, that's okay. I'm Jewish, so I can use that reference. But as these terrible things were happening, Epaphras is trying to correct them, and it seems like nobody's listening. So Epaphras goes to visit Paul in Rome about 1,200 miles away. 1,200 miles. That's far, in case you didn't know. That's, that's like really far, okay? And it's not like he had a car, not like he had a plane. Just like, hey, we're going to go to California. Like, this was far. So Epaphras, knowing all this, says, well, I, I need to get Paul to write something because Paul's an apostle. In other words, he's appointed by God to give the word of God to the people of God. He goes, Paul's in Rome, and he's in prison. And as he's in prison, it's kind of like, if you're in prison, shouldn't you just be kind of like moping around and sitting around and, and being depressed? Paul did a lot of ministry in prison. In fact, it seems like he's more effective in prison than when he's out of prison sometimes. Um, no offense, Paul, but it's true. So Paul in prison gets this visit from this guy, Epaphras, hearing about the church at Colossae, he writes this letter, and then he sends it back to the people of Colossae. Now that you know the context, and now you know the heresy, I think the question is, well, how is that relevant to us today? Because, you know, the people of Colossians, like, it's not like you sat down and verse by verse exposited this, this book when they got it. Like, do you imagine, like, they get the scroll, and like, read us the scroll. He's like, okay, this week we'll go over 14 verses, and the next, they didn't even have verses back then. We'll go over, like, this passage, and next week we'll go over, most likely they just read the whole thing, and they understood it. But we, since we're 2,000 years removed, we need some context to understand this passage that we're reading. So, all that to say, what in the world does it have to do with us, and why would we care? Well, here's the thing. There's nothing new under the sun, right? Something that happened 2,000 years ago, what you see is history repeats itself. And even for this Colossian church, a Christian church, it was possible for false teaching to creep in. And when you hear false teaching, you think of things like Jehovah's Witnesses, schism. You think of like, I don't know, you think of like, I don't, just you think of cults or something. You don't think of things that we could struggle with. But I'd venture to say as we pay attention to the text here, you're going to find out there are things that we believe, things that we buy into that we can relate with, with the Colossians. Oftentimes, though, I think what happens is with false doctrine, because we feel we're not susceptible, it hits us like a sucker punch. What's a sucker punch? It's a punch you don't see, see coming. And the thing is, as a Christian, we believe that once you're saved, you're always saved. We believe in the perseverance of the saints. In other words, if you really believe in Jesus, that your salvation is secure. And we have a number of passages that we can draw from where Jesus said, 
All that the Father brings to me, I will by no means cast out, and I will raise him up to the last day, and, and no one will be able to snatch him from my hand. That's what we believe here at Calvary Chapel. But here's the thing, and this is the first point that everyone needs to pay attention to tonight. Just because you're saved doesn't mean you're safe from snares. And just like a sucker punch, if you're not careful and you're not looking out for these snares, these traps of the enemy, what happens is you're still saved, but you get sucker punched. You still get the wind knocked out of you, and therefore you're not effective for the kingdom. So being saved doesn't mean that you're safe from snares. That's our first point for this evening. This is why, if you remember when we studied 1 Peter earlier this year, in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8, Peter says, Be sober, be vigilant. Because your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. So the devil is always waiting for prey that's unsuspecting. If you look at lions, what do they do? They don't chase after animals that are already on the defense. But they look for people, or not people, maybe people, hopefully not people. They're looking for animals that are unsuspecting. <coughs> that being said... That's why also Paul wrote to the Ephesians in chapter 6, verse 13. He says, Therefore take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all to stand. I believe that there is once in a while an evil day that creeps in. And Pastor Lloyd spoke on this before, but oftentimes what happens is I think the enemy, one of his tactics is He's really harsh at first, tempts you a lot in this one area, and then kind of just holds back a little bit so that you think you're safe. And so what happens is like, oh, well, I don't struggle with that sin anymore, so it's okay if I go to that place or if I go onto that website or I do this thing or do that thing. Or, you know, I haven't talked to that girl in a while, and I know she was trouble, but like, it's been a while. I think I'm good. I'm a stronger Christian now. And because you let your guard down, the evil day comes, and we don't have our armor on. So it's a false perception that only weak Christians can stumble. Did you know that? That it's not just weak Christians that can stumble in the Christian life. In fact, what we see here is the Colossians had genuine faith. And look at verse 4. It says, Paul says, Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of your love for all the saints because of the hope which is laid up for you in heaven. So they had genuine faith, love, and hope. And in fact, doesn't Paul say in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 13, abide in faith, hope, and love, these three, but the greatest of these is love. They had all three. And yet, Paul was still warning them in the rest of the letter that just because they had faith, hope, and love didn't mean that the enemy wasn't going to seek to devour them. So what is false doctrine? I've seen this happen, like literal false doctrine, you know. Like I've seen some people believe certain beliefs where suddenly it puffs them up and they think things like, oh, well, I never heard this at Calvary Chapel. I never heard this at Oldbridge. You know, my youth pastor never taught me these things. And because I never heard these things, I've been led into the secret wisdom. I remember a kid in youth group who felt like we were never taught church history and that there are other denominations that have uh, longer roots. Calvary Chapel started in the 70s, right? So because this other denomination had these longer roots that kind of trace back hundreds and hundreds of years, he felt like he should just go with this denomination that didn't practice the same things that we practice. And so, not to say that there aren't 
bad denominations, and not to say that there's not good denominations, but do we depend on the word of God, and are we vigilant to make sure that we're not falling into the traps that the enemy has for us when it comes to false doctrine? It's very sad to see a person who's really excited at first. <coughs> I'm sorry, I'm still recovering from pneumonia, so I will intermittently cough. It's just the way it is. You can pray for me. Maybe I'll, like, miraculously be healed and it'll be fine. I don't know why I said that. <laughs> it's a sad sight to see some people that are so excited about the faith. They come in and they, it almost seems like they're here every single week. And they're, like, raising their hands in worship and etc. But then the next week it's like, what happened to them? And then you find out they're, they're following some false doctrine. We've seen that happen before where... Suddenly a kid's into, like, Buddhism or whatever. It's just like, what? You were, like, so on fire for God two weeks ago. What happened? Well, the power, parable of the sower and the seed shows us that there is a such thing as super soft soil that kind of lets anything grow in their hearts. And if your heart is soil and you just let anything grow, at first it could seem like you're allowing the roots of Christianity, the word of God, to grow. But then there's this extra doctrine that you never heard of. Well, I never learned that youth group. And then you just let that in because you haven't learned to put up safeguards to filter out what is truth and what is false. Besides false doctrine, though, the other way that we can be deceived is simply by sin. I can't tell you a number of people that have backslidden in their faith. In other words, have once walked with Jesus and are no longer walking with Jesus because of the allure of the world. Let me give you some examples of snares as it's seen in the Bible. <coughs> Proverbs chapter 29 verse 25 talks about the fear of man is a snare. It says the fear of man brings a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord shall be safe. In other words, sometimes we can fear what people think, and because we're so concerned about what people think, it keeps us from trusting in the Lord. That's the contrast right there in the verse. So here's the thing. If you are afraid of what people think, you're often not going to be put, placing your trust in the Lord and not be concerned about what he thinks. You've got to choose one or the other. You can't hold in high esteem the opinions of people and the opinions of God. You have to make a choice. So the converse is true. If you choose to trust in the Lord, you will no longer care what people think. Imagine a world where you are free from the opinions of others, where you can just do things and not always think like, but what are people going to say? If I do this thing and then everyone's going to call me like holier than thou, like if I just choose to pray during school, if I just choose to talk about the word of God with my friends, they're going to think that I'm like super spiritual. I think I'm better than them. Like what if we just started trusting in God and not caring what people think? Then we prevent ourselves from the snare of the enemy. Because here's the thing. If you care more about what people think than what God thinks, then when people think that you should not follow God, guess what you're going to do? You're going to do things that please your friends and not please the Lord. It's as simple as that. When your friends say to you, like, really? You're going to church? You go to church on Sunday, don't you? Like, you're going to church on Friday night? And listen, just because you miss a Friday night doesn't mean you're a heathen or anything like that. But you know, deep down in your heart, you know when your friends are like, oh, you go to church all the time. Really? Like, we're going to go and we're just going to hang out at my house. 
Like, that's what, that's what you do on a Friday night as the alternative. So you could be worshiping living God, hearing his word, getting guidance for your life as to what you're supposed to do on this earth, your purpose, etc. And then everyone's alternative is just, let's, like, hang out at the house and, um, like, talk, you know? It's like, okay, cool. Like, I wish that somebody, their alternative was like, dude, I met, like, John Bon Jovi. And I was hanging out at his house in, like, Rumson. I don't know where that came from. And you probably don't even know who that is. But that would be cool. I would probably come and bring you guys with me. Right? Like, we would all do that. So the point is, make sure that we trust in the Lord and not fear man. Another snare is... (coughs) Lust and toxic relationships. Ecclesiastes chapter 7 verse 26 says this. And I find more bitter than death the woman whose heart is snares and nets, whose hands are fetters. He who pleases God shall escape from her, but the sinner shall be trapped by her. We all know that oftentimes it's the one compromising relationship. It's the one person that we're like, ah. They're basically a Christian. They said that they're Catholic. They said they go to church once in a while. So it's, uh, they said they believe in God. Like that's, what more can you want, right? It's like the demons in hell believe in God too. Like, oh, yeah, but these, this is a human. So that's better, right? We, we come up with all different kinds of excuses, but we got to recognize that if the most, some of the most godly people in the Bible Solomon, David, Samson fell to sin in the form of relationship. What keeps us from falling in the same direction? We got to be very careful that we don't fall into the snare of lust or an inappropriate relationship. Another snare is a desire to be rich and successful. 1 Timothy chapter 6 verse 9 says this, But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and a snare, and into many foolish and harmful lusts which drown men in destruction and perdition. So here's what he's saying. He's saying, listen, if you desire to be rich, nothing wrong with being rich. Like you got a lot of money. Cool. God's blessed you. Use it. But if you desire to be rich, careful. If you're not satisfied with what you have now, you're not content and you're constantly seeking more, you're going to fall into a snare. And before you know it, what happens is you're chasing a job that makes a lot of money. I know, once again, countless people that no longer fellowship with other believers, they have a personal relationship with God, right? Like, oh, yeah, I still pray once in a while. I still read, like, once a year. But what happens? They let a job take the place of relationships with other Christians, with relationships with God. And so they stop coming to church. They stop reading their Bibles. They stop praying. They stop enjoying the fellowship of other believers. And it also is a snare. So Paul starts off saying, listen, I'm going to thank God for what he has done in you. That you have faith, you have hope, you have love, and your hope is laid up for you in heaven. And he starts talking about all the good things that have happened. And so he starts to give us some ways that we can safeguard ourselves from these deceptions, from these snares. And he hints at the first one in verse 7. Look at verse 7. He says, after he says, grace to you, peace, and thanks, and awesome, and God's awesome, he says this in verse 7. As you also learned from Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, who is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf, who also declared to us your love in the Spirit. 
So what he says here is, listen, I, I know that, that Epaphras has been faithful. He's been faithful to minister to you. And he's brought the word of truth to you. And so what he's basically doing right here as Paul, as an apostle sent by God, ordained by God, he's saying that guy Epaphras, the one that's at your church, he's a guy that you can trust. I know maybe you didn't agree with him. I know that when he was at your church, there, there were some heresies that happened and things that you disagreed on. But this guy, he's the real deal. And our first way that we can safeguard ourselves from deception is keep faithful ministers of the gospel in your life. Keep faithful ministers of the gospel in your life. Because what you see here is that Epaphras was dedicated to the church. He was a person that, if you actually look um, at Colossians chapter 4, verse 12, he says, Epaphras, who is one of you, a bondservant of Christ, greets you, always laboring fervently for you in prayers, that you may stand perfect and complete in all the will of God. Here's a guy who's constantly laboring in prayers for the church. He cares, and he loves that church. So the question I'll have for you is this. Do you have godly, wise people in your life? Do you have godly, wise people in your life that you can confess anything to? That you can ask any question from? That are praying for you constantly? It doesn't have to be an older person. It could be. It could be an older, wiser person. It could be a parent. It could be a youth leader. <coughs> it could be a teacher. But do you have people like that in your life that are investing in you and say, listen, I, I'm here for you. Because those are the people that you want to keep around at all times. <clears throat> I have a friend who's a pastor at a different church in a different state. And uh, I met him like once. And uh, earlier this past year, I got a letter in the mail, and it was from that pastor. And he was just encouraging me at the right moment. Actually, the night before, I wrote in my journal, I said, like, Lord, I just need some encouragement. I was just, like, a really discouraging week. I felt useless and et cetera. Those things happen, you know. And I just prayed saying, like, Lord, I need encouragement. I wrote that in my prayer journal. The next day, I get a letter from this pastor who I met once. And just saying, like, the best days are yet to come. I'm praying for you. Here's my number if you need anything. And I was like... This guy, like, he didn't have to talk to me ever again. He has his own flock. He has his own church. And he would take time to write me a letter, like, look up my address, you know, on the, on the, on the CCOB website. Like, that's awesome, right? And he fulfilled uh, my prayer to God by sending that letter. And he was, in, in doing that, that's something that encouraged me and got me through the rest of the week. So do you have people like that in your life that are willing to step out of their comfort zone, willing to do things? that would actually cost them time and energy to pour into you. The next way we see actually starting in verse 8, or verse 9, sorry. It says, For this reason we also, since the day we heard it, do not cease to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding. So the first thing he, he says is, is that we pray for you because we've heard of your genuine faith and we want to protect it. So the second way, not only to keep faithful ministers of gospel in your life to safeguard ourselves from deception, the second way that we can safeguard ourselves is that prayer can help protect the spiritual growth of other people. Prayer can help protect the spiritual growth of other people. And so listen, if you have friends... They are making poor decisions. 
If you have friends in your life, people, family members that you're watching walk away from God, one of the ways that you can actually actively participate in keeping them in the family of God and wandering off and falling, uh, falling victim to those snares is through prayer. But how often do we dismiss it? How often do we just kind of say like, oh, there's no hope for them or I'm just, I'm just so bummed out because I'm watching them make these bad decisions. No, but by laboring in prayer, we can actually help protect them. And that's why Paul says it. I don't cease to pray. And it doesn't, it's not literal, right? It's, it doesn't mean that like actually 24-7 Paul is praying like, I'm praying and praying and praying and praying. You know, like that's not what he means. What he means is in hyperbole, I'm just always, con- you're constantly on my mind. Now, Paul, listen, 1,200 miles away in Rome, in prison. If anything, Paul had the excuse to be like, I just want to get out. This letter could have been about like, and while you're at it, like, can you pray for me to be released from prison? Paul found contentment even in a dungeon. He didn't care. And that's what he wrote in Philippians, right? He's like, whether I have a lot or I have a little, I don't really care. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. He learned the secret of being content. And instead of asking them for help, he says, I want to help you. Even though I've never met you, I want to let you know that I'm praying for you. So what are are the things that he prayed for? (coughs) He prayed for, the first thing is he prayed for, is their understanding. And we see that in verse 9. He says that you be filled with the knowledge of his will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding. So once again, going back to the heresies, once again, false doctrines. In contrast to the empty ideas that the people were listening to, he was saying, I hope that instead you fill your minds with heavenly wisdom. And that's what we learn in James chapter 1, verse 5, right? If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all liberally and without reproach, and it will be given to him. All you have to do is ask. And God is waiting for us to, to, to ask for the wisdom so he can give it to us. But oftentimes, people feel like, ah, I don't, I don't really know if God wants to listen to my prayers. I don't know if God wants to guide me. And we're absolutely wrong in, in that assessment of God. I mean, just imagine that you have an artist who's working on a masterpiece. And he's spending all of his time devoted to that masterpiece. And as he's working on it and he's, he's finishing up, he just kind of stops halfway. He's like, eh, I'm done. And I just like, I give up and that's it. But when you get to this point of obsession over the masterpiece, it's like you need to finish it. That's all you can think about. And God says that you're his work of art. And so why wouldn't he listen to you? And the fact of the matter is that in Romans chapter 8, verse 14, it says, For as many are as led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. That you're not some distant relative. You're not some distant stranger or person, but you're actually God's child. So Oftentimes, it's like, isn't it true that, like, when you pray, you're afraid that God's going to give you some, like, abstract answer that's completely not what you want? For instance, how many of you are terrified that if you actually seek God, he's going to call you to be a missionary? (laughs) Right? Like, that's your worst fear in your life is that, listen, if I keep praying for wisdom, I know what he's going to do. I know God. I know what he's going to do. He's going to be like, great, great. I'm going to send you to a place that you hate. I'm going to think, like, you know, you watch those, like, National Geographic, and there's that one remote, uh, rem- one remote town in the middle of Uganda. 
I'm going to send you right there where you're going to get like West Nile virus, you're going to get Ebola, you're going to get like everything that you ever imagined, like on top of that. But you're going to do it for me and it's going to be awesome. Like, I used to think that. It's just like, oh Lord, please don't call me there. Please. You're just praying. Here's the thing. If God calls you to do something, it's because he made you to do it. And so as you actively participate in the thing that God calls you to do, you're going to get that feeling. You're going to be like, I was made to do this. You're not going to be like suffering emotionally. I mean, you might suffer emotionally a little bit, but you're not going to be suffering in your soul because that's what your soul was created to do. I mean, it's only natural, right? There are certain things that just come natural to certain people. And when you, like, even if you love a sport, there's some sports that just come natural to some people and some sports that don't come natural to other people. I can, like, I love to rock climb. You guys know it. I love to play. I loved to play basketball but back when I could play basketball. Now I'm, a, I'm terrible. I'll never be good at golf, ever. I just know it. I went out once upon a time, like, maybe five years ago with my friends. Dave was actually there. He can witness this. I just, like, stiffened up so much, and I had no fluidity, and I just could not hit the ball. Like, we're just trying to tee off. I could not do anything. And there are some sports I wasn't, you know, I'm not good at. There's some things that you're not good at. But there are other things that you're just natural at. And that's because God has created us different to do certain tasks and certain work. And so, once again, if God is calling you to do something, better believe that you're going to enjoy it because you're going to feel fulfilled not only in your life, but also in your soul. <clears throat> so, understanding wisdom, it's okay to pray for it. God's not going to give you something that you're just like, why? Why am I doing this? In fact, what I'm going to say is anything that you seek for yourself in the world is never going to actually fulfill you. Because you're making it up as you go along. You are trying to figure out what you're supposed to do. And what makes you think you have more wisdom than God? What makes you think that you actually know why you were created more than God did? He designed you. He has all the knowledge in the universe. So then the next question is, okay, what is worldly wisdom? What is the worldly wisdom that we're supposed to watch out for, that we're supposed to avoid? I'll tell you one thing. Uh, how about security is found by going to college and getting a good job? That's worldly wisdom. And I think that worldly wisdom, honestly, is preventing a lot of people from taking risks in this life. Preventing a lot of people from going on mission trips. Well, I can't go on a mission trip. I need to save money for college. Like, cool, save money for college. But what if, what if you just start, started sending out support letters and said, like, I'm going to go and believe that God's going to provide. I'm going to be diligent. I'm not going to sit around and just, like, send money down and, like, waiting for the heavens to open up and, like, dollar bills to float down. Or, like, even better, like the country you want to go to, like the DR, you're waiting for like pesos to come down. Like it's a sign and it's the money. <laughs> Instead, being diligent, being faithful and saying, I'm going to work as hard as I can and going to believe by faith that God's going to supply the rest. I mean, how exciting would that be if that actually happened, right? Like you said, uh, by my calculations, if I go on this mission trip, I will come up short by about $500. But I'm still going to work as much as possible. I'm going to pray. I feel like God's calling me. I'm going to go. What's the worst that can happen? The church sues you for $500? No. Like, talk to me and we'll figure it out. But the point is, do you take steps of faith? Are you willing to say, like, I don't want to listen to wisdom of the world. I want to listen to what people say. I want to listen to what God says. 
Here's another source of worldly wisdom. How about cutting corners? How about <clears throat> getting paid under the table, not paying taxes? How about listening to or downloading movies legally or borrowing someone else's Netflix account? Or I mean, everybody does it, right? So it's like, it's got to be fine. I mean, that's the way to, it's smart. I'm saving money, and I'm going to use that money to tithe. Duh. <laughs> like, obviously. All I'm saying, I'm not here to convict you. That's God's job. What I'm here to do <laughs> is just ask the question. Are we listening to worldly wisdom? Are we listening to wisdom that's from above? Here's the thing. I don't want to be legalistic. I don't want to say, like, this is the purpose of you being here tonight is for me to make you feel bad and tell you all the things that you're doing wrong. But I want to ask you the question. Because here's the thing. This is what it easily turns into. Are you listening to secular music? Are you listening to, like, Chris Tomlin 24-7? And if you're not, then you're in trouble. That's not what I'm saying. Like, my poor friend, one of my best friends, like, because he went on a, a, a summer retreat, the guest speaker was saying, like, throw out all your secular music. And he had so many CDs. Because, remember, we didn't have, like, Spotify back then or whatever. He took his, all of his music collection, every bit of secular music, and threw it out. And to this day, he's like, oh, man, I regret it so much. <laughs> and... I'm not saying that's, like, that might have been the good thing. I don't know. But here's the thing. It's not so much don't listen to music that's secular. The question is, what does your heart like to listen to? That's what you got to be careful about. Not so much, like, are you making sure you're not listening to anything that's bad and has curse words and whatever. The question I would ask is, what do you find that your heart likes listening to? Because maybe there's nothing wrong with the lyrics. Maybe there's no curse words. But you're believing a thought or an, an idea in a song that's causing your heart to pursue other things than God. Whether it's money, whether it's just even a relationship. And you're finding that as you listen to this love song, it's like pushing you more and more to pursue after a relationship that you know that's not healthy. It's like watching those movies where you really believe that the person that's best friends with the girl is going to suddenly, like, the girl's going to turn around and be like, and you are the one that I love. It doesn't work, ever. And you're just going to waste time. But what does our heart like to listen to? So he says, correct understanding, <coughs> which leads to a straight walk for their character itself to be formed. And so he says in verse 10, that you may walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing him, being fruitful in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. So a correct understanding will lead to a worthy walk. To be able to walk in such a way that pleases God. And that's why Paul writes to the, second, uh, to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 9. He says, therefore we make it our aim, whether present or absent, to be well-pleasing to him. And that's how you eliminate every great area question. So anytime someone asks, is it okay to smoke cigarettes? Is it okay to vape? Is it okay to, and is it okay to listen to secular music? All those great questions, here's, here's how you answer it. Are you aiming to please God? If you're aiming to please God, suddenly that's not even a question. You're like, well, that person does that. Should I do that too? Like, how about you just aim to please God and you'll figure it out, you know? And as you please God and make that your aim out of love for God, you're not even going to care about the secondary things. Like, should I get a tattoo when I'm 18? I'm not saying it's right or wrong to get a tattoo, but 
the question is, like, what is your aim? What is your motivation behind getting a tattoo? And very oftentimes, this is motivation. Um, I, it looks cool. And I saw, like, the Tinkerbell tattoo, and I was, like, so stoked. The glitter and, like, the little sparkles that kind of disseminate from it, it's just amazing. And here's the thing. The minute you turn 18, you get it. And the day after, you're just like, it's not that great. I thought it was going to sparkle, and it did not. So any person, this is a side note, and then we're going to finish the study. Anytime a person asks the question, is it okay to get a tattoo, I would say this. When you're 18, don't get a tattoo. Wait two years till you're about 20, 21, so maybe three years if you do math right, and then get a tattoo if your parents allow it. The reason being so that you know it's not just a decision you make kind of on the fly because when you do that, it's going to be on you for the rest of your life or at least until it wrinkles and then it just, you can't even make out what it is. Okay. <coughs> he also said in verse 10, fruitful work. So fruitful deeds and fruitful understanding. And this reminds us once again of the parable of the sower and the seed. In Matthew chapter 13, verse 22, he who receives seed among thorns is he who hears the word and the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word and he becomes unfruitful. God's goal for you is that the things that you do would have a purpose. That you'd be able to make it. And not just in your work, but in your understanding. And then finally, the last thing he prays for is for their strength in verse 11. So all of this turns into strengthen with all might according to his glorious power for all patience and long suffering with joy. So strength. We have the strength to endure. And that's what he's praying for. So listen, I'm praying that as you, um, as you are filled with his knowledge, filled with his understanding, that you have a straight walk, that you're walking consistently, you have a good character. I'm praying for your work that it would be fruitful and that you have strength to endure. How many of us, if we're honest, are ready to give up in the good work that we're investing in because we don't see any fruit? How many of us, and maybe you've been serving in children's ministry, and you're just like, I'm exhausted. These kids are exhausting. At first they were really cute, but like, they're crazy. And you're ready to give up. Here's the thing. So many of us forget that much of the work of the Lord is seen in the future, not in the present. And if we're just willing to sow seeds and say, Lord, you're going to bring the increase. I'm going to wait on you. And that's why we need the strength of God to be patient and long-suffering with joy. To say, I can wait. It's okay. I don't need the rewards right now because I know that's coming by faith. And maybe this has to deal with dealing with other people too, right? Long-suffering, being able to deal with other people. Long-suffering. So what does that look like? Well, how long-suffering was Jesus? How long-suffering how long was God in the Old Testament before he judged nations? Sometimes it took like 500 years before he judged nations. That's the kind of long-suffering that God wants to give you. But I don't live for 500 years. How will I be able to judge them? Exactly. That's the point. That's why God says, vengeance is mine. I will repay. You sit back and you relax. You be patient. And you can have joy when you hand it over to God. And then lastly, he says, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us. Our qualification doesn't come from ourselves. It comes from God. How do we, we, we don't earn salvation. It's God who gives it to us. 
And that should bring constant thankfulness. And when we are constantly thankful for what God has done, it reorients our priorities. Like suddenly, I don't really care about success. I don't care about riches. I don't care about anything, really. Like I'm saved. Goodness gracious, I am going to heaven one day. I'm not going to go to, I'm not going to, go to hell. And when you are thankful for what, for what God has truly done in your life, not only did he save you in the future, but today he wants to give you a life abundant with joy. Suddenly everything else doesn't really matter. In conclusion, he says this in verse 13. He has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of the son of his love, in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. I love that phrase here. And he's about to go into this kind of poetic song right after that. But right here, what's really important is he talks about how God has delivered us from the power of darkness. And when I hear that phrase, here's what I think about. So constantly having gratitude, thankfulness for what God has done can be hard unless you actually take time to think about, like, what God actually did for you. The power of darkness. When I think of the power of darkness, I think about when Jesus was being delivered to the Sanhedrin. In Luke chapter 22, verse 52 through 53, it says, Jesus said to the chief priests, captains of the temple, and the elders who had come to him, have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs? When I was with you daily in the temple, you did not try to seize me, but this is your hour and the power of darkness. You see, just as, everyone pay attention, everyone look up here. Just as Jesus was constantly just ministering to people and, and all those things, but it was at nighttime that people had clubs, had spears, they were ready to crucify him, and they were ready to take him in, although he wasn't going to fight back. They came as a thief. They came to rob him. They came to sneak up on him. They trapped him. Judas betrayed him with the kiss. That's how the enemy wants to treat you, that he would sneak up on you when you least expect it in the middle of the night, that he would come upon you and that he would have you fall into the snares of the enemy. But the good news is that God has delivered us from the power of darkness. Amen? And that's why we can believe in him. Because we have been delivered from the power of darkness because Jesus was delivered into darkness and conquered darkness on the cross. Cast it out so that you and I don't have to worry about it. See, we never have to experience the hour of the power of darkness because Jesus had already. And if we constantly remember that and have the gratitude and thankfulness that we don't have to walk in the darkness, but we can walk in the light, it will help us step into that new reality. Let's pray.